When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 71 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known by all of us by now as simply DCU. I've been calling them that for decades. You know what I mean. And whether you're driving off the lot or refinancing, DCU can help you save on your next auto loan with rates as low as 1.49% APR. Yes, I'm serious. Rates as low as 1.49% APR. So if you're looking for an auto loan, whether you want to drive off the lot with a new car or refinance, well, you got to reach out to DCU. You can learn more at dcu.org slash auto. Insured by the NCUA, membership required. That's dcu.org slash auto. Okay, this week's episode is so old school, but it's with a guy that's not old enough to be that old school, or is he? I got a chance to talk to Nick Reese, the lead singer of the band Joyous Wolf. And this band, I truly believe, is part of the next generation of great American rock bands. Now, I had to wake him up early. Unfortunately, he was moving because he's on tour. And we had some reception issues. So I just want to get that out first thing. Because you're going to hear him. But that's what happens when you're trying to interview a working rock band that's literally out on tour. Nick Reese and I talked about a lot of stuff, including inspiration. And if you're not familiar with Joyous Wolf's music, well, there's a ton of it in the corresponding playlist for this episode. It's linked in the show notes. Matter of fact, there's a corresponding playlist for every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast. But as I was talking to Nick, I really got the impression that he is a very old rock and roll soul. He grew up in a house where music was everywhere, and so he was inspired by it all. And you'll hear him talk about it in the episode. He very early on figured out that he could sing and play the guitar and, well, some other things you'll hear him talk about. His musical tastes are eclectic and fascinating. So just imagine he's driving down the highway, having just gotten woken up, clutching a cup of coffee, trying to answer my questions first thing in the morning. And he couldn't have been more gracious while he was doing it. We talked about his vocal health, his inspiration, his style of songwriting, and how the band met. We talked about the music that he grew up listening to with his parents. And some of the bands that he's been fortunate enough to tour with. And I got a little bit of info about the upcoming new album that'll be out in early 2022. If you are a lover of rock and roll, if you love the Delta Blues, if you just love the guitar... Well, you are going to love Joyous Wolf. So allow me to introduce you to Nick Reese from Joyous Wolf.
Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Food Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Hi, Nick. Good morning. Good morning. It's not, uh, it's not often that I drag somebody out of bed, so I apologize for making you get up so early. Oh, it's okay. Just on the road. Ready to, ready to tear it up. You guys are out on the road, and you played at a venue the other night. That is so legendary when it comes to rock and roll. You played the Viper Room. How was that? Yeah, we played the Viper a lot, but this time was really good because, well, honestly, it was my favorite show we've ever played because, you know, we filled the entire club out and things were spectacular. You know, the crowd was amazing. They knew the words to the songs and it, it was really incredible. Like the atmosphere was electric and I don't know. Like it was just one of those really special moments. I don't think I'll ever forget. A lot of bands are having these kind of amazing emotional responses, getting back out on the stage, like you're talking about, where the crowd. It it seems like the audience needs to be there as much as you need to be there as well, and we've waited so long to be able to have shows, and and even though things aren't the way that we want them to be completely open and everyone healthy emotionally. I think for everyone going to these shows is very cathartic. Yeah. I think there's a lot of, of therapeutic elements to it. Um, I think for sure uh, what is very different is just uh, that this is the first show well, that was the first show we played, you know, since we entered the top 40 with Fearless. And, you know, it really showed, you know, because the KLOS hosted it back home, you know, who have been supporters of us ever since, really since we were able to, like, play actual concerts. Like, our first real concert we ever played was with them um, hosting it. And, uh, you know, them backing up the show was just to, just made it even, you know, cherry on top, really. For people that aren't familiar with the band, can you go back to the formation of the band and, and tell me the story? Because there are a handful of bands I can think of that met when they were that young. Yeah, you know, it's it, so I was probably like. I had just turned 20 years old, not even no, I think I was still 19 years old. And. I'll start with Blake. Um, I was post band practice, my old band that I was in at the time, which was like a little alternative band. 
an alternative, like kind of pop rocky band. And I remember we were at Guitar Center and, you know, if you've ever been to a Guitar Center, especially one at a mall during the summertime, it's a, a loud, annoying place to be because um, everyone's playing in different keys, playing different songs, different time signatures all at the same time. So it just sounds like, you know. Um, it's like that scene in Wayne's World where they're like, no stairway, dude. I wish they would have enforced that because there must have been at least 30 different stairways happening at that moment. <laughs> but, uh, like, another, it, was, it was 2014, so it was like stairway and then also like, drive by incubus and uh whatever else you could think of that was in the top you know 50 at the time or whatever but um yeah so i couldn't handle it because my head was already pounded practice so i retreated to the acoustic guitar room and that's where um i sat down and i was the only one in there so it was actually really nice like uh you know a moment to myself peace and quiet and I'm just strumming up, you know, banging on a guitar or whatever, playing whatever I was playing. Um, and then this guy walks in, and he's got this big curly hair, you know, like I'd never seen anybody with hair like that, like that wasn't, you know, female. And uh, he was picked up a resonator guitar and he, he was having trouble tuning it. And I had brought my tuner from home, you know, uh, working in a music store myself at the time I worked, I was employed by Sam Ash music stores. So it's a miracle. I didn't burst into flames being inside that guitar. Sound. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I brought a guitar tuner and I tossed it to him. He tuned up and he got the thing, you know, playable and I asked him if he wanted to jam. And that was, how I met Blake and we probably played for probably all of seven, 10 minutes, you know, but our separate ways, but I added him on Facebook and I guess he liked my singing voice. Okay. He's like, uh, he's like, you're in a band. And I was like, yeah, he's a teeny guitar player. And I was like, no, <laughs> sorry. Uh, but I'm, you know, Hey, you never know. Maybe something will happen. Um, and if something does, maybe I'll do a side thing or whatever. I'll call you. And he's like, yeah, sure. And that was it. And I didn't see him again for like seven months. Um, uh, and then Robert, the drummer, I knew already. I knew him. I met him on orientation day for middle school. Um, you know, we met just because, you know, of roll call, you know, my last name has R, his last name has S. So he sat right behind me and <laughs> that's it. It's you know. so crazy. That's what I mean when it, when I talk about bands that go back that far. That you could just get sat in front of somebody in homeroom in middle school and end up that that's the person you're meant to be in a band with. Yeah, like it's it's pretty strange. The more you know, sometimes when things go happen, you know, we'll we'll talk about those times and how bizarre they really are. And uh, the thing is, so I, you know, Rob's one of my best friends, like ever, you know. And uh, he ended up going to a different high school, though. But he still lived like, you know, a couple blocks down the street from where I, my house. It wasn't like I didn't see him ever again or anything. 
um, so he went, he went to a different high school and that's where he met Greg, you know, and if he, he never would have went to that high school, he would have never met Greg and, and Greg actually had just transferred high schools at the time too. So, you know, it was just kind of brought together and they became friends and it was just a weird thing where like they didn't join any bands really. They, you know, they played in a couple like of our friends things, but never anything serious, but they just jammed for years. You know, they just played bass and and drums together for years. When you were growing up, did you realize you could sing first or play the guitar first? Um, those kind of came hand in hand. I learned guitar to be able to sing along too. So it was never like, it was never one or the other because just feel a second. Yeah, um, it happened simultaneously. Um, what I do remember though is actually dancing came first. I was a dancer. Dancing was something I was able to do from a really early age. Like, I don't exactly know why. Uh, my mom said I saw James Brown on TV. Um, it was a documentary about the Tammy show uh, back in 1964, and he was doing Night Train. His famous dance from Night Train. And I apparently I got up and started sliding around on the floor in my socks. And you know, that became a big part of my DNA is just moving to music. And the fact that I could move to music was, you know, pretty important because that's kinda kinda what I do. Um but yeah, singing and playing guitar came together and I had the worst guitar hero ever, Elvis Presley. So I just learned how to bang on my guitar really hard and, <laughs> and sing the blues. Did your parents buy you your first guitar? How old were you? Uh, they did, but they bought me, they wanted to discourage me. So they bought me a, a beginner who had no idea about guitars. They bought me a, a guitar with a Floyd Rose and uh which to anyone who's knows guitars and isn't familiar with floyd rose it's it's, it's kind of cruel <laughs> um and they didn't uh they didn't give me a um an amp they gave me this little pocket amp you know little plug it into your headphones <sighs> kind of thing well they didn't want to deal with the noise Oh, they didn't want me to be a musician. <laughs> they really didn't. And I was honestly a terrible singer, too. I was absolutely dreadful to the point where they sat me down and were like, Nick, there's something called tone deafness. <laughs> and it's okay. And I remember that made me so angry. I was so unbelievably mad that I sang every single day. And I don't think I've stopped since. So where did it come from that they didn't want you to be a singer? Are they part of the music industry and that's why they wanted to steer you away from it? Or did they just want you to be a lawyer? A lot of my family was part of the music industry and it didn't work out so well for them, gotcha. including my father. So, uh, but eventually I think even though my dad was saying no, he was kind of slowly nudging me in that direction anyways. <laughs> 
So what kind of music was on in the house when you were growing up? Like, obviously, James Brown, Elvis Presley, stuff like that. But what what made you go, that's what I want to do? I mean, it's funny because all the music I loved as a kid, my mom and dad, you know, are children of, like, the 70s and 80s. You know, my mom was a teen and my dad was, you know, his early 20s and in the 80s. So, and like 60s through that that period you know a lot of new wave music whatever but my parents were strange because they just you know they're kind of snobs so i heard nothing but like but you know jazz and and like 1950s you know rock and roll like rock and roll to me was like what rock and roll was to someone who was born in 1940 you know like i like Jerry Lee Lewis and Little Richard, Pat Domino, Chuck Berry, and and you know guys like that. Oh, that was rock and roll to me, like like these crazy characters. And you know, my dad was a rockabilly guy in the '80s, so he had a ton of records left over and a bunch of cassette tapes and a lot of the clothes he still had, pictures, and you know. So I was enthralled by 1950s rock music, and that was like the beginning of stuff for me. And the jazz singers, like. Obviously, you know, like crooners like Frank Sinatra and whatever, but then you get like Billy, Billy Holiday. And, you know, there was, it, it was it was a really nice household to grow up with. You know, I'm glad I did. You know, to this day, music is a part of everything my family does. Every meal, every outing, every drive. This, you know, it's not it's not something that's like a piece of our day. It's like the entire day. The day doesn't start until somebody presses play, and you know that soaking that up from a young age you know there's a lot of understanding of the music that i have you know and a lot of old country and a lot of a lot of root music in america you know i discovered the blues through my love of of elvis because you know he was an admirer of the blues i had this book called the elvis encyclopedia and anything that had anything to do with him was in that book so and alphabetized so i learned about all the artists he loved and through him i learned about you know I took that knowledge and I learned about what influenced those artists. And that's how I learned about Delta blues artists, you know, and that's when, that's what really kind of grabbed me when I heard BB King for the first time, when I heard uh, muddy waters uh, live in Newport, when I heard that record for the first time, I, I remember that's making me stop as a kid and being like, this is awesome. I don't know what it is, but it's awesome. What's this guy talking about? I don't know, but it's awesome people that have innate musical ability they process it differently are are you somebody that learns by ear are you somebody that learns by lesson and reading music like how did you get into playing ear completely i i i'm in a, the only musical theory i know is whatever's rubbed off of uh robert craig and blake these last seven years um uh, so yeah, I mean, which is true by the way, it's been seven years. Oh my God. Uh, almost, almost like six and a half, but it's still, but, uh, yeah, you know, the guys have, you know, have taught me a lot about that part of music, but how I learned was strictly just by listening and and I was always a good mimic. I could always do people's voices, and I could always uh, imitate sounds and 
when I was a kid, I'd like imitate like machine guns and, you know, like, uh, C3PO or whatever. <laughs> like I used to just, I love to mimic things. That's kind of how I learned is like, I'd listen to Elvis records and I'd like press play and I listen to a certain part and then I try to emulate what I heard and did it poorly, obviously, because I don't sound like Elvis too much. I don't think, but I try to, I think there's a little bit of Elvis in there, but, um, yeah. So it was really just about my ear and training my ear and learning about, okay, is this in key? When you are writing a song, like I'm fascinated by the process of it and what goes on in your head, because I'm not a person that has musical ability. And so your brain is processing these notes and you're learning all by ear. Do you see things in your head processing the notes? Like what, talk me through like what's actually going on in your brain as you're writing a song or playing your guitar or, or writing lyrics. Like, like, is it tied to visual? Like, how does that work? Yeah. It's always been visual for me. Like, I write what I feel and then, you know, that's not like some groundbreaking comment, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, for me, it's always been visual. Like whenever the guys will play something or I'll play something by myself, whatever the, whatever the chording or the, the mood of the song sounds like is what inspires the lyric. You know, um, one of the songs we have called feel below, for example, is, is uh, something that Blake wrote. Um, this and this melodic, really pretty little piece from our first record. Um, and if you listen to that, I don't think it's too hard to grasp, but that's the title and that's the lyric that I came up with because it filled my mind with a sort of melancholy attitude. And it reminded me of certain things that had happened to some friends of ours at that time you know, or one time, a long time ago, uh, we had a song, and when I heard it for the first time, it reminded me of, like, marching Roman legions. And uh, also the song Mother Rebel we have is, um, I wrote about Harriet Beecher Stowe in the Civil War because, I don't know, it's got that kind of southern twang to it with the slide guitar, and that's just what I pictured happening in my head. I saw soldiers, I saw... I saw that kind of thing. How does it work with the band when it comes to writing? Does somebody bring a riff into the room? Does the band work on the music and, and then you concentrate on the lyrics and the melody? How does, how does that process work within the band? We all write together. Sometimes, uh, like Blake will bring something in that cuts pretty common. He'll bring in like, uh, hey, I got this, this riff. Or I got this thing. What do you guys think? And then we'll just kind of jam on it for like ever. <laughs> and this new record that we just finished um, a few months ago, um, it was very much just a, that exact process was like, Hey, here's something. Maybe this is something. And I, we went back through like two years worth of uh, phone demos and little pieces we had recorded and sifted through all of them to see, okay, is, any of it, is this good? What do you think of this? Is this good? Just to kind of revisit everything. So we had a bunch to, you know, kind of start the foundation of what the album would be. And 
it's just it's really just a process of the four of us you know bouncing off each other and it's always noticeable when okay this is something because you can feel it in the room and everybody's like okay yeah yeah and sometimes somebody might be behind a little bit but eventually they catch up and like oh, okay because if three people like something and one person doesn't yeah, the person who doesn't like it can be like you know what if the three of you like it there's some, there must be something to this. So, you know, I'll just keep with it and we'll see where it goes. And that's kind of our rule of thumb is like we always try things. We never not, you know, I mean, there were certain songs on the new album that we had like rewritten and written and rewritten and written and written. And the only thing was like recognizable was like a 30 second part that we just loved and everything else just kept changing because we hated it. So it's a constant process of trial and error and, Really, just the four of us connecting creatively, I think. You played shows and spent time with guys like Buck Cherry and Dirty Honey that have been on the show before. And those bands are so kind of old school in their stripped down, straight ahead, blues driven kind of rock and roll. And it goes to show that, you know, what was old is new again. Can you talk to me about what you think? rock and roll is moving towards because everything is so cyclical. And of course there have been people saying that rock is dead for decades. Uh, they seem to say it every 10 years that it's dead. So I don't really understand. I think rock is dead in the sense that as people knew it. And I think my whole thing that I've been preaching since we first started this band is that people need to let go, you know, Every generation, you know, I think of rock and roll like a car, you know, and every generation, you know, the old guys got to give the young guys the keys, you know, here, son, the, the car is yours. The family car is yours now. Uh, and it's like sick. I'm going to paint some flames on it. No, don't paint flames on it. It's my car now. You can't, you know, or I'm going to, I'm going to paint, uh, I don't know, Hello Kitty on it, you know, whatever. <laughs> It's, you know, that, that's the whole thing I always say is that it's not going to be exactly what you remember because why would it? And I think that's a big thing for Joyous Wolf as, you know, us as a band is that we kind of fill that out, I think, a little more than some of the other bands um, in the sense that we just kind of don't care about any of the rock and roll machismo, especially because it just it doesn't really make sense to us because we don't have any relatability to that. You know, we're four guys from Orange County, California. We live 15 minutes from Disneyland. Like we're not a grunge band. We're not, you know, we're not, we're, you know, we're, I, I, I think it's just like we took rock and roll as we love it because we love classic rock and we love, you know, the, the root music of it all. And we worship, those bands and those who have come before us, you know, like with the utmost respect and integrity. And I think rock and roll is just changing into something different. And that might seem scary to some, it might seem like, Oh, it's not the thing that I remember, but, but that's not a bad thing because that's how it always is. You know, the talking heads are as rock and roll to me as Led Zeppelin is, or as the kinks are, you know, or, uh, as, Mississippi Fred McDowell is, or, you know, like to me, it's, it's all the same. It's just, you know, you work in the same field, just different areas. And I think rock and roll is just right now is in, in the, 
I was, there's so many amazing bands like Dirty Honey and, and uh, so I'm just, I'm just playing. It's still too early in the morning. Like, uh, like Dirty <laughs> Honey and uh, the band The Rebel, New Jersey, and uh, of course, like, um, oh yeah, Broken Love, you know, Broken Love from Canada and another Canadian band, Crown Lands. And there's some amazing. Uh, new rock bands that are on the come up right now and you know that are that are bringing something they're bringing their personalities to the music and personality is everything anyone can can be can just stand up and and anyone who can hold a note and play a lick can can play cover songs and do stuff like that and 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 phone it in but to, to bring your own personality your own perspective your own feel to the music is what makes it important and that's the most important thing for rock and roll and it's great to be part of a wave like this and it's great to see so many amazing bands have their own particular styles that are inspired from all sorts of different places and and musical mechanisms and it's 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 wonderful and that's what's most importantly the thing as I always say is that rock is dead, but it's it's rebirth is what's exciting to me. Well, and you're so right too when it comes to the geography. You know, for somebody like you that grew up in Southern California, it's impossible for you to like understand why, you know, I'll take myself in as, as an example, why music from Boston might be more angry. Because you don't deal with 30 below zero wind chills in January or, you know. Not to say there's nothing to be angry about in California. No, 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 no. But it does, you know, when you talk about the Seattle grunge movement, like it is an external factor that does influence what comes out of that area. And yeah. You know, you, you know, you talk about bands like like Incubus or the Red Hot Chili Peppers that are these famous Southern California bands. But then you then you move a little bit and you get into like Bakersfield and Corn, and it's a totally different thing. And, you know, the 80s rock that came off the Sunset Strip like it. There are all of these different kind of sounds, but it's just one ingredient into whatever it is that you're making. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, for us, it's very much like, um, wow, we really don't like it here too much, but oh, well, (laughs) (laughs) I think that's what fuels all great music. It's like, man, I don't know if I like it here. (laughs) Yeah, it's rock and roll doesn't get made when people are super happy a lot of the time. Not really. (laughs) There's a certain amount of struggle that's required. Um, we talked about Buck Cherry a little bit. You spent some time with those guys on the road. I've known Josh a long time. One thing I know about him is how strict he is taking care of his voice. What are you doing to take care of your voice out on the road? I hydrate a lot. I drink like two gallons of water a day. Um, I try to talk softly, which is why. My usual tone of voice is not happening right now. <laughs> um, and uh, I uh, try not to speak. I, I talked to Miles Kennedy recently, and he said that the thing that hurts his voice the most is just talking. Yeah. It's funny because my whole, um, my, you know, my whole vocal change, um, the last 
year and a half has been because of Miles in a big way because uh, we we toured with them in 2019 with Slash and Miles Kennedy and uh, I got to talk to him a little bit about that and I watched him on stage and, and it was extremely inspiring and uh, that's what made me sought out um, my vocal coach Melissa Cross and but really changed because over the pandemic I, I had nothing but time so I completely relearned how to sing from the ground up. Her voice, I mean, uh, her name comes up pretty often when I interview musicians and singers, obviously, specifically. That she She's this person that singers hold up as a god. <laughs> she's very much a genius, and she's done more for me vocally than anyone ever. What else did you spend time doing while during the lockdown when you had all that free time? Anything non-music related? No. <laughs> I mean, after the first like three months of pain, you know, and getting over the depression of it, the guys and I reconvened and started working on the record. And that was a like a long, arduous process. And talking about inspiration coming from misery i think there's going to be a lot of great rock and roll coming out in the next couple of years i think it'll be a lot of great and a lot of terrible <laughs> and that's that's how i feel about it because I, I already know that just because bad things happen doesn't mean good art happens you know that's that's a myth <laughs> <laughs> sometimes too much misery makes music worse yeah it's like you need that 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 just, just enough yeah, <laughs> I was going to ask you for an example, and then I was like, maybe he's not going to want to talk shit, but, I mean, you're kind of right. I mean, it's it, I love Morrissey, but... <laughs> he is pretty miserable. <laughs> I think it was uh, Robert Smith who said, I write sad songs, but Morrissey's songs make me want to kill myself. And that's such a Robert Smith thing to say, too, because I'm such a huge Cure fan. That, And and when you think about him, you do think about someone that is so sad and but, but is able to turn it into these amazing songs. But it's like he's just sad enough. Yeah. Um, can I talk to you about songwriting? I, I ask this question of every songwriter I have on the show. And... The question is, from a songwriter's perspective, that can you give me an example or two of a song that you think is crafted so perfectly that you covet it and say, oh, I wish I wrote that song because it's so good. It's not so much a song you just love, but, but a song you love because of the craft. And can you break down why you love it so much? Man, there's so many different kinds of songs for different reasons, but I'll give you like some opposing sides of the spectrum here. Um, I think Lingus by Snarky Puppy, which is this, this fusion jazz, like epic is a perfect song. Like if you ever, if you want to just go on an adventure, put that song on. It's like, I wish my mind could work that way. I wish I could, I wish I could detail musically like a song like that but you know into more simplistic terms i think here comes the sun is probably one of the most amazing songs ever written because of its 
it's so simple that anyone could have wrote it, but nobody did. <laughs> Only one guy did, and name's George Harrison. And he's honestly him and it's like I always say he's like, oh, he's my favorite Beatle. And then I'm like, oh wait, Paul's pretty good too. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're all pretty great. Um, but he he never got the credit. Because he got stuck in the shadow of the Lennon-McCartney kind of songwriting prowess, but George Harrison is a fantastic songwriter. I mean, you know, and I think even he himself was like, well, of course I am, because I worked with with John and Paul, you know. But, and that's kind of how, you know, that's what happens when you're in a band. You kind of, you take pieces from everybody and then you put yourself into it, you know. Um, but... Another, I'm trying to think. So Mr. Brightside by The Killers, like, because that song is just, for my generation, it's just like, it's it's just an anthem, you know. It's just such a, and such a, it's a perfect tune. You listen to that song. There's not, there's not a, there's not an inch of fat on that song, and there's not, a, it's just perfect. And every little hook and every little counter melody is perfect. And uh what else um well you mentioned epic are you talking about faith no more epic <laughs> i think i think even more epic than faith no more i think uh bohemian rhapsody is a perfect song i mean to the point where you play it anywhere who does not know that song but it's a seven minute song there's not too many seven minute songs that that become number one, you know, this, so, and, and I, mean, I think I honestly, I could say that for a lot of Queen songs, like, and I it's not even best. just the length of it. It's the, it, it's, it violates every rule almost as to what would work in rock and roll. But that's kind of the point is that there are no rules and that's what they illustrated it. And already that was being shown by like the, you know, early pioneers of like the psychedelic movement. We were starting and Brian Wilson, you know, like people who were really starting to, you know, get really out there. Speaking of Brian Wilson, uh, God only knows uh, for him. I mean, Brian Wilson, you could, it's, it's genius through and through. I love Brian. And I actually got to see Brian with my tour manager in 2019, which was a bucket list moment for me. And, uh, Let's think about it. California Girls. That's a perfect song. Tori uh, Baby be nice. Uh, you know, uh, surfs up. Like, you know, like you listen to those songs. I mean, I get around as a cheesy little song about friends driving around the city, but that song is perfect. It's a perfect little song. It's got all the hooks. It's got all the jumps. It's got all the, you know, I love the Beach Boys, but uh, I go on about that. But it's like, you know, that like, uh, maybe I'm amazed by Paul McCartney, another song. I could go on all day. I'm going to be here all freaking day. Uh, but that's why I love ACDC. That's why I love this question so much because music people love music, but songwriters always look at it from a different perspective because you're looking at the blueprint of why people love the song so much you can see the, the the inner workings of it where just a music fan just hears it and is like, oh, I love that. But they might not understand why they love it so much. I mean, it's just when you see like how people break the sounds. I mean, like there's so many different kinds of songs, you know, like La Vie and Rose by like the version that Louis Armstrong did, you know, with the classic romantic, you know, cornet, you know, in the beginning and, uh, 
you know, like there's just something to the way that a song is played and the, the minds behind the gelling of how everything fits together. And, you know, it, it, and there's so many different people that work. I mean, like you listen to like the thriller album and there's so many perfect songs on that record because you look at the clientele, not only the phenom that, that was Michael Jackson, you also had Quincy Jones, who was the greatest music of all time, you know? And it's all about these people who just have a talent for putting the the things in its place. I mean, like people like Stevie Wonder and, you know, and then you can get like, into like, you know, I think Run to the Hills by uh, Iron Maiden is a perfect song. So it's just like, there's so many perfect songs, you know, there's so many songs that I, I salivate at just the, the idea that like, how did you make this? How did this, uh, good vibrations going back to, to Brian. I, I feel like that's, I feel like good vibrations is Bohemian Rhapsody before Bohemian Rhapsody, because it was a song that had uh, tons of interchangeable parts that had no relation to each other, other than the fact that they were what Brian Wilson heard in his head. You know, like the part with the cellos going, you know, and the, the mixing and mashing and the, the pace changes and like that was revolutionary. And, you know, like stuff like that, when I, my appreciation for music is just like, how do you make this simple thing work? Or how did you make all of this massive thing sound simple? You know? Well, you talk about Stevie Wonder, John Paul Jones said that it was superstition that inspired Trample Underfoot. I mean, that makes perfect sense. I mean, completely. I mean, yeah. The, I mean, Stevie Wonder is like him and Ray Charles to me are like two of the most gifted musicians to ever like live in our time. So like, I I I love both of them dearly, and I honestly love like everything they've ever done. So. <laughs> Um, well, let's, let's talk about your music since you guys have spent so much time working on it. Give me the plan for the record and kind of where you're hoping the band kind of ends up next year. You've, you've got some plans like the download fest next year already, which is kind of a big deal. Yeah, we got all those European festivals. I mean, here's the hope and third time's charm. Um, we, you know, we got our, our albums going to come out first quarter of next year. We don't have a, a concrete date yet, but we're working on it. Um, and also uh, just to say for CB wonder, just while we're on the topic of it is a uh, fearless new song, um, is inspired by CB wonder. And, uh, uh, if you listen to it again, with that in mind, you'll totally see what I'm talking about. Um, it was very heavily inspired by CB wonder. Um, but uh, yeah, we have a lot of dates coming up. Uh, we're doing our headlining run right now. Um, dates are online. Uh, next show is in Colorado Springs uh, tomorrow, and um, looking forward to it. You know, so feeling feeling good. Well, I really appreciate you hanging out with me today. I know you had to get up early, which is not something anybody that works in the music business ever wants to do. Yeah, it's but okay. I love your musical knowledge and your passion for um, not only what's come before, but also 
I, I love the way that you kind of look at charting the new course for rock and roll with this new generation of bands that are coming out. And I was really looking forward to talking to you because I just think that Joyous Wolf is one of these bands that is part of this next wave of great American rock bands. And so I, well, was, thank you. I was really we happy so. that I got to talk to you today. Well, we, yeah, we really hope so. But thank you for having me. Anytime. Stay safe on the road. I apologize for getting you up so early and uh, go back to bed. <laughs> I came back for the camera. Hello. Goodbye, Hi. everybody. Follow Joyous Wolf on social media. Also me. Whatever else you want. Bye. Thank you. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much. There he is, Nick Reese from Joyous Wolf. Now, you can go to the show notes of this episode of the podcast and check out the corresponding playlist. There is some great music on there, including their new single, Fearless, and a bunch of their other music as well. You'll also find the links to find the band online, and you'll find all of my links too. Special thanks once again to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union at dcu.org. And if you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss anything from the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday, plus every weekday you get the sit rep. The Situation Report is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes every weekday. Join me every Tuesday night at 8.30 Eastern live on my Facebook page for my video show, Cocktails in the War Room. And you can find Cocktails in the War Room and Mistress Carrie swag online in the official Mistress Carrie store at mistresscarrie.com. The Mistress Carrie podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.